course, there are things we can do to improve our own coping strategies and look inwards. But I also think it's crucial to, as it were, de-individualize these things, to say to yourself, you know, it's not about me this time. And there are issues here that are structural. And what can I do to try and challenge or change these structural barriers and problems rather than internalizing the blame? Welcome to the Leaders with Babies podcast. My name is Verena Hefti. I am the CEO and founder of the Social Enterprise Leaders Plus. With this podcast and our award-winning Leaders Plus Fellowship program, I want to give you access to inspiration and practical support so you can continue to progress your career whilst enjoying your young children. You can take the first step to join a network of like-minded, ambitious parents who love their children from all sectors by going to leadersplus.org.uk forward slash fellowship. Applications to our fellowship have opened and will close on 15th October. You will get a senior leader mentor, access to thought leadership about what works for parents and careers, and of course, space to think in a structured environment together with peers who are supportive and help you think. Today's chat is with Shani Orgat. Shani is Professor of Media and Communications at the LSE, and she is really interested in why some mothers leave the workforce after having children and what we can learn from it. In this podcast, she shares with us our research and some of the practical things that we can all do if we have these moments of thinking, is this the right thing for me? Is it not? I thought she was really helpful in terms of thinking through what you do when you are in these moments of overwhelm. So I hope you enjoy and get a lot out of today's conversation. A very warm welcome, Shani, to the podcast. Uh, why don't we start with you introducing yourself, who is in your family and what you do for your work? Okay, thanks a lot for inviting me to take part in this podcast. Uh, it's a real pleasure. I'm a professor of media and communications at the London School of Economics and Political Science. I'm myself a mother of two teenage children, two boys. And my recent book, which is entitled Heading Home, Motherhood, Work and the Failed Promise of Equality, really touches on some of the major challenges and questions and struggles of women in paid employment today in the context of starting a new family or having children, even older children. Thank you very much. And this is actually not in the podcast briefing notes that I've sent to you, but now you just mentioned the title of your book. One thing that I'm really interested in is about how people decide whether or not to have children and whether to have more than one child or more than two, three, four children. Mm-hmm. And I'm just I'm just interested in, you know, that failed promise. For the, what is your, I guess, thinking on that? How, like, is it possible to have a career and children? Is there a certain limit of the number of children that you could have? I know that's a very simplified question, but something that has been on my mind. Yeah, I can answer this through the story of the book. I think on the very question of how many children, children, I think there's more and more research that shows that the decision to have children is increasingly a financial one and often quite a calculated one rather than one that is just a kind of more, if you wish, romantic kind of desire to have a family and so on. But that's 
aside. But maybe I, I should start by saying a little bit about how the book came about, the kind of issues that it has revealed precisely in relation to the question you, you've just asked me. So the book, like I think many, many research that all of us academics are doing, derived partly from my personal experience. As I said, I'm the mother of two children. They're now teenagers, but when they were younger, every morning when I was dropped them off at the local primary school, in I live in North London in a leafy neighborhood. And so at the gate, I would meet some of the other moms, occasionally dads, I should say, but mostly moms. And I was usually rushing because I had to get to work. And lots of the mom around me would hang out and they'd chat after the children went in or they'd go to for coffee in one of the local cafes or one of the mother's houses. And I'd often be quite kind of hurried, needing to catch the tube to get to my lectures. Many of my lectures starts at 10 a.m. sharp in central London. But once, as I was leaving the gates and dashing off, one of these mothers invited me to join them for coffee. And I said, oh, thanks so much, but I can't because I have to get to work. And she looked at me with this kind of pitying look and she paused and she said, oh, you poor thing. And I was genuinely puzzled by her comment because I was wondering why she felt sorry for me. And this has kind of opened up in me lots of questions. I knew that this woman in particular and most of the other mothers that I've known, all of them had once been in paid work, I knew most of them were or had professional careers such as lawyers, accountants, engineers. And I'd often wondered why these women that I would meet on a daily basis at the school gate had become full-time mothers and what their lives looked like. But very much, you know, in relation to the question you've just asked me, whether their decision to leave paid employment and quit their jobs and become full-time mothers was a result of some recognition or realization that family life and the type of careers they've had were incompatible. So I became increasingly curious about the women that belongs to this group. And I went to look at the statistics, and I think the statistics are quite interesting. I looked at the labor force survey, the UK labor force survey, which shows that Although clearly, you know, when we talk about this group of women, of professional women who left paid employment, we talk about a very small minority. We know that the majority of women generally are in the workforce. However, I was still surprised to discover that almost 20% of stay-at-home mothers in the UK are highly educated. And we there's the, the kind of figures are pretty similar in the US, even higher, quarter of state-owned mothers in the U.S. have college degrees. Interesting. Yeah. So I think the puzzle to me here was, well, commonly we hear that the main factor that pushes women women out of the workforce is that it doesn't make doesn't pay for childcare. It doesn't make sense financially to stay in paid employment if you can't if all your salary and all your wage basically covers childcare. But here you had women who had invested years of their lives in education, in training, who earned a lot of money and were also partners or married to partners who were also on high income. 
And so the puzzle was, if the explanation here wasn't that they couldn't afford childcare, so what was it that made them to make a decision that is also really in many ways contradictory to all these kind of messages that circulate today? So I went to interview, I, went, I interviewed 35 women who were in professional careers, and I spoke to women who were lawyers, accountants, managers of different kinds of different levels, partners in law firms, but also women who worked in the third sector. I spoke to social workers. I interviewed women who had senior, held senior levels in charity work. I spoke to teachers, to former head teachers, academics, artists. And although there are specific kind of particular characteristics to each of these sectors, I think there, there were some interesting common things that came up. And, and one of the things that really puzzled me the more I delved into this research was that this is a group of women. So we're talking about women in terms of age range. Women, the youngest was in her early 30s. The oldest was in her mid 50s. And these are women who I interviewed women who were between three years out of the workplace to 11, 12 years. And from women who had younger children to women who had older children. But generally speaking, this is a group of women that I think many of the women who are in the workplace today would identify with in many ways, because this is this is the generation, if you wish, that if you wish, ripped the fruits of the long ongoing feminist struggle to create the conditions that should enable women to pursue their choices across all areas of life and specifically to combine motherhood and a successful career. And I refer in the book to a lot of the kind of contemporary popular representations, you know, their television shows from The Good Wife to, you know, Borgen, the kind of Danish series, lots of depictions of successful women, Sheryl Sandberg, very influential manifesto from 2013, but more recently, Helena Morrissey, who I, I know you've interviewed on this podcasts as well, A Good Time to Be a Girl. There's a lot of the cultural kind of landscape is replete with these kind of stories and images of women who assert themselves, who achieve leadership, who, and, and do it combine professional ambitions with motherhood. So the puzzle was how come in a cultural environment and also in a policy environment, I think it's important to say, because the government in the UK, the government in the developing world is encor are encouraging actively women to enter the workplace and stay in the workforce. Why do women who seemingly kind of have, you know, everything they need to be able to pursue successful careers and combine them with motherhood, why did they leave? Why did they make this decision? Mm, and I think that's such an important question, because if you, if you can solve that, you're very close to looking at solving the gender pay gap or so not I mean simplifying here again but I think if we figure out why women drop out mm -hmm. when they have children that will solve a lot of the questions about how can we get more people more women to the very senior roles or more carers to the very senior roles in the long term I saw some research, I might have mentioned it before on the podcast, that the gender pay gap is relatively similar until about 30, which is the average yeah. average age for a woman in the UK to have a child, or it might be 31 now, actually. And then it really increases when people when women have children, that's when a pay gap massively yeah. changes because Absolutely. the men continue rising. Again, obviously, 
not the same for every man, not the same for everyone, but we need to understand what's happening here. So what did you find? What what did you see happen? To start with, I think it's really crucial for me to say that it's a confluence of factors that have pushed the women I've interviewed out of the workforce. There's no one factor. But I think if we are identifying the key factors, the one major factor is one that I call toxic work cultures, you know, work cultures that are toxic. And it's a term I'm actually borrowing from Anne-Marie Slaughter in her book, Unfinished Business. And these are work cultures that are characterized by this idea that work is constantly in this crisis mode. Yeah. So it's a culture working is the ideal worker is always on, always awake. And it's interesting because we know that historically, this was a characteristic of particular sectors of what was used to be called the greedy professions of finance, law, consulting. But we know now from more and more research that this kind of always on work culture is becoming more entrenched across the board. So I spoke with women who are teachers, who are social workers, who describe very similar toxic work cultures. And the COVID-19 kind of context have thrown this kind of into sharp relief and seems to have in many ways exacerbated it in really problematic ways. I think one story, if I may, I want to give a story of one of the women I interviewed that I really exemplifies this toxicity. So this is a woman whose pseudonym in the book I call Louise, and she's a woman who graduated from one of the UK leading universities. She studied politics and Russian studies, and as soon as she was like quickly recruited, as soon as she graduated, she was recruited to become marketing manager in the headquarter of a Danish firm. And The firm was very quick to realize she's a brilliant, kind of talented, ambitious, and she was fluent Russian speaking because she studied Russian studies. And so they relocated her to, she was very quickly, after a few months only in her job, she was relocated and promoted to be the manager of the firm's operation in Russia. And it was really interesting because she spoke about this job that she has done for many years with so many, you know, with lots of fondness. And she talked about the firm. She worked for that firm for 12 years. She spoke about that firm as her family. She emphasized, because it was a Scandinavian organization, that they were very progressive and very forward-thinking. And then all this story, you know, she talked about with so much enthusiasm about this job. And then she kind of, in, in our interview, paused. And then she said, this is in a way, all changed when her daughter came along. And she described how she returned from maternity leave and tried really, really, really hard, that's her word, to kind of, for an entire year, the first year after coming back from maternity leave, to manage working late hours. So, you know, the the idea that late hours were something that she took for granted before as part of what this work is about. And she describes how she was always, she was this ideal worker. And it was really interesting because every single woman I interviewed almost basically told the story of this ideal worker, you know, the one who gets on with things, efficient, rarely sick, focused, always available. These are all very ambitious women, as I believe many of the listeners of this podcast are. And Louise truly wanted to continue this kind of getting on with stuff. 
But what happened is after a year of, you know, swallowing and absorbing what you call kind of minor incidents, having to stay late hours, work on weekends, and she has had a child who was very, very young. She reached a point, you know, with great agony. And I should say that a lot of the interviews I've done were very painful interviews. Uh, women often cried. So at that moment, a year on, Louise had to admit to herself and to her workplace that she couldn't live up to these kind of the dictates and the norms of the workplace. And she arrived at this after an incident. And, and it's an incident I'm dwelling on, on the book because I think it captures what many women might find quite resonating with their experience. So when Louise's daughter was born, she was diagnosed with some kind of a minor fault in her heart and it required her to go to take to to take her child to a monthly hospital checkups. So, you know, as many people would know, as soon as you get an with the NHS, you get a letter that tells you your appointment is at that date. So as soon as she would get the monthly appointment, she would tell her boss and tell her, you know, on that date, I'd have to take my daughter and I'll have to leave early or so on. And so she arranged it with her boss in advance. But one of these hospital heart meetings happened to clash with an important work meeting, which Louise had to leave early. And although she told her boss in advance, she told me how she had to, she felt very conspicuous standing up and living in the middle of the meeting. And I, you know, when she described it, I felt it viscerally. I, I as, as an academic, as a full-time academic, I, there's countless incidents that I remember of this kind of feeling of you, you know, in a meeting, say, of, I don't know, 20 people, you're kind of pulling yourself out of the of the chair and kind of on, on your tiptoes leave, leaving and, and feeling very conspicuous leaving in the middle of the meeting. Again, despite the fact that she had discussed it in advance with her boss. And, you know, shockingly, but again, it, it's shocking. And at the same time, it's stories I've heard again and again from women across different sectors. Later, Louise, in her appraisal meeting, her boss commented critically on her inappropriate oh, gosh. professional mm. conduct of leaving the meeting. And she says how to her it was like a breaking point because it highlighted for her, that's what I want to bring here, the way she describes it, it highlighted her to her that she was no longer capable of being this ideal worker, was always on, always available, and she said, I took it personally. And she said, you know, I felt like the tables had turned on me so much. And the stories I've heard from many of the women I've interviewed is are really stories of being deeply disillusioned and disempowered by these toxic work cultures. And I want to say here that I think it's really crucial to stress that the toxicity of the workplace cultures applies to both women and men. Yeah. Mm, very true. And and actually men who do dare to say, oh, I have to rush to pick up my child from nursery because they're cold because she's sick. You'll notice from the research, but anecdotally, I find that sometimes the punishment and the microaggressions they experience is even bigger than, than women at times. Yeah, I think, you know, I think the reality is that both men and women are subject to these work cultures. And I think it's quite striking that despite so much talk about improving work cultures, and I think that we shouldn't deny the changes, but at the same time, it seems to me, and again, there's lots of research that shows that change is happening 
oftentimes or more so at the level of policy. So you'd go to these workplaces and you'd say that, see that in their guidelines, in their internal policies, it seems fantastic. But in practice, women and men still daily experience this feeling of having to leave early in a meeting and getting these kind of punishing, punitive kind of gazes and are being punished or penalized for this in informal and informal ways later. If I can ask here, if someone is listening to this right now and he or she is working exactly in the type of workplace that you're describing, what what is your advice, if any, to them? So I think, you know, my advice comes from what I have diagnosed as the, the, there are multiple problems at the level of the workplace, but what struck me perhaps more than anything else in the research I've done is that Whereas the women I interviewed were all well aware of these these kind of systemic work culture issues. So Louise, interestingly, Louise, by the way, after she left, she took her workplace to court, sued them for sexual discrimination and won. And she's not the only one. So what I want to say here is that these are women who realized that the problem is structural and organizational, and they were very aware that there were, as it were, that there were tables turned against them. But at the same time, and this is what struck me, despite their accounts of the huge influence of these toxic work cultures, by the way, both their own toxic work cultures, but also their husband's work cultures, because if your husband's work culture is is incompatible with family life and yours is entirely flexible, it still makes life very difficult, if not impossible, in terms of combining motherhood and careers. So despite recognizing this, they also repeatedly consigned their own, their decision to leave the workplace to something that is there was a problem about themselves. So in other words, they kept recasting the structural barriers they faced as internal barriers. So repeatedly, women would tell me things. So they'd give me this account of workplaces that were utterly incompatible with family life. And then they would conclude and say things like, you know, there's something wrong with my personality. I just don't have the personality type of a professional mother, or I'm not a natural, or, you know, the with me was that I lacked ambition or I lacked confidence. And I sometimes would challenge these women and say, how come you're saying you're lacking ambition? You know, there was a woman who was, who trained to be a geneticist and uh, studied for eight or nine years. And that was her dream. And then she became a GP, deferring her career to her husband's career, succumbing to very difficult workplace conditions. And then she concluded concluded and said, you know, I didn't have the ambition. If I was ambitious enough, I would have done it. So to your question, I think there's something really, it's easy to say, and I'm not saying that I'm necessarily always successful myself, but I think if there's one thing that I have taken from this and I would encourage women is to keep reminding themselves that, of course, there are things we can do to improve our own coping strategies and look inwards. But I also think it's crucial to, as it were, de-individualize this thing, to say to yourself, you know, it's not about me this time. And there are issues here that are structural. And what can I do to try and challenge or change these structural 
barriers and problems rather than internalizing the blame. You know, I always think back to Sheryl Sandberg, where she says internalize the revolution. And I feel that the women I've interviewed failed to live up to this lean-in demand. And having failed to internalize the revolution, as it were, that Sheryl Sandberg is calling us to do, instead they internalize the blame. And I think there's a crucial work here for us as women to reject and to to work against internalizing the blame and and also kind of obeying this very strong imperative and message around us that if we only fix ourselves, if we only take another course in boosting our confidence, our self-confidence, if we only work on ourselves, if we only download that app that will make us more assertive. I don't want to dismiss the significance of these things, but I think it's crucial to recognize, at least on the basis of the interviews with the women I've done, that at the same time, what it does is that it further individualizes and personalizes the problem. It really reinforces a message that you have to work on yourself. But if all the system around you remains the same, remains really deeply broken, you can fix yourself as, you know, as much as you want. It won't, I think the problem will just be exacerbated. And so I think, you know, I, I write about in, in the book about how so many of the women I interviewed very painfully muted their desire, muted their disappointment there were so many things that they just didn't say, yeah, neither to their workplace nor to their husbands or to their partners. And it might sound trivial or kind of straightforward and obvious, but one of the things I would say is talk. It's crucial in the context of, of women dropping out, or I don't like the term dropping out, but women leaving paid employment, because what happened was that at the moment when women would due to take up their maternity leave and when the women were due to return to the work there was in all the accounts of the women I interviewed there was they described a silence there was just no very little communication from their employer so many employers simply so for when the woman when women would come and tell to their boss at whatever stage they decided to announce their pregnancy bosses would say you know congratulations but there was no discussion in any detail, at least, about what would happen, what would be possible avenues and arrangements for her return after she gives birth. And similarly, when these women called their workplaces to inform them that they decided not to return after the end of their maternity leave, what was shocking to me is that most employers made no or very, very small efforts to talk through their decision. Now, I know it's a very delicate thing legally because the statute in the UK says that employers can only make kind of informal inquiries about whether or not their employee intends to come back from maternity leave. Employers are instructed that if they make an inquiry, it has to be very, very sensitive so it doesn't breach the implied mutual trust and it doesn't kind of, it's not construed as harassment. So I think there's, you know, and that's obviously very important that this law to protect women. But at the same time, it seems to me that the law is there to protect women against discrimination. But in, in this instance, it's kind of legitimizes and maybe encourages employers and employees to just not talk about it. And Lots of the women I talked about, it said how they didn't have the conversation. You, you would have thought it's such a momentous decision. 
other thing to your question, I would say is that, you know, if you are at this stage now of reaching the end of your maternity leave, thinking, can I do it? Can I not? Talk, talk to your partners, talk to your workplaces, express and articulate your anxieties and your needs. I think that's so interesting. I don't know if I mentioned it earlier, but when we do the fellowship program, part of it, to, uh, there are two elements that are optional. One is with a session with the line manager, which is just a very simple guided conversation. You know, what are the things that are challenging? What are the things that are helpful? And and actually, this is the research about what helps parents at work. Um, how can you apply that in your day to day? And so very, very I shouldn't say this actually, but you know, it's very simple stuff. It's not rocket science, but it's what's surprising to me is the impact that it has by just putting people in a room, obviously now a virtual room, and getting them to have the conversation and having an excuse. I this is a session of of the fellowship program. Have the conversation now. Having that excuse is so transformative, and actually the same with the partners. Again, you know, we do talk so much with our partners generally about day to day stuff. But actually, the big long-term questions—you sometimes, you sometimes just need a space to think together about these things. And and I really like your advice of making sure that those simple conversations need to be had. And I also love the advice about just understanding that the challenges are systematic challenges, and there's nothing wrong with you. Yeah, I think you know, time and again, women would tell me if I have one regret is that I didn't have that conversation about what I wanted and what I needed at the time. And they say, I didn't have this conversation with myself. I didn't have this conversation with my husband or with my partner. And I didn't have this conversation with the workplace. So, and I think, you know, the other thing that is related, I I, I talked a lot about that conversation with the workplace and the kind of toxic work cultures. The other factor that has come to light, and we know that there's so much research, unfortunately, that confirms it, was that a related factor that pushes women out of the workforce is not just inequality in the workplace, is inequality in the home. And it seems to me that we can no longer, and sh- and, and, and it's, it's just impossible to carry on the conversation about gender equality in the workplace if it remains disconnected from the conversation about what's happening in the home. The women I interviewed were all describing, you know, being what we call the foundation parent. Even when they were working punishing hours, they were bearing the brunt of the unpaid childcare at home. They did the bulk of the housework. And this is, again, consistent with national figures across the, you know, we know from national statistics that women carry out an overall average of 60% of unpaid work more than men. And it's risen sharply now since COVID-19. And so it was the the combination of having to do the lion's share of the chores and, as it were, parenting their children, parenting their homes and working in workplaces that were deeply incompatible with family life that ultimately propelled these women to leave their careers. So, again, this is this sounds trivial, but it's a very difficult conversation to have, but one that is so fundamental to have, which is a conversation with your partner about what's happening at home. I had, you know, there's a woman I interviewed who was a lawyer and then she kind of scaled back because she didn't want to leave paid employment altogether. So she became a legal advisor in the third sector. Again, a job she really liked. 
she said, my, my employer was amazing. They were flexible. They were really as flexible as it gets. But for her, the problem was that her husband occupied a very, very, very senior position in a media firm. And as a kind of a common, generally, he didn't arrive home until 10.30 at night every day. Although maybe this is an extreme, I should say that the husbands of many of the women I interviewed often wouldn't see their children awake during the week because of frequent business traveling, because of early starts and late homecomings. And so inevitably, their husbands' toxic work cultures meant that women had to bear the brunt and the conversations between the couples were often muted or they didn't happen properly. One of the surprising things to me was when I asked the women I interviewed is, how did you decide that you were quit? Can you recall the conversation you had with your partner? And many of them said, we never had that conversation. It just happened. I just found myself. Again, this sounds trivial or straightforward, but we know how life is pressurized and how we are going through so many struggles and, you know, with a young child, there's so many demands and all our attention that so often women's own needs, desires, ambitions are being put at the very, very bottom of the heap. We do have responsibility to initiate or to kind of insist on this conversation, but bearing in mind again that it's not about necessarily or only fixing ourselves somehow, but it's about how do we, together with our partners, with the workplace, create conditions, structural conditions that enable life that is enables kind of, you know, combining parenting and satisfactory and satisfying work. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think there's also a thing about choosing. So obviously choosing the partner, <laughs> which you have to start early um, and it may or may not be too late for that. And obviously you, you can still have a conversation uh, with someone who comes home at 10 o'clock at night. It doesn't mean they can't, they can't uh, change that behavior. But there's also something about choosing the workplace. And I had a really interesting conversation. I think by the time this recording goes out, there will be a few podcasts back with Alex Pang about you know, the four day week, a week workplaces where there are not that many yet, but it shows clearly that when people get a break, and I mean, not just working four days a week and then checking your emails constantly on the other three days, but, you know, he says, actually, you're producing so much more when you do that. You're doing, you, you are happier and you're getting better results for the employer. So, I think there are some employers out there and I see that as well. So we have fellows from all all sectors and all organizations. And I don't think from my experience, there's a sector that is much better than others, like you said. But I do think there's diff or some organizations have different. Yeah, I can really see just from hearing the stories from the fellows, how there are differences between organizations and just using your network, figuring out on, in informal ways what the organization is like mm-hmm. before you apply is probably pretty important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, again, these are kind of individual tactics about surviving in a challenging environment. So just, I want to just ask about happiness. Mm-hmm. So did people who quit, did you, would you say, I mean, you might not have researched that, but did they get happier? One of the really interesting thing, one of the questions in, in my interview questionnaire was, what do you find satisfying in your life today? I've asked all the women I interviewed. And this question was repeatedly met with, laughter, 
or with smirks or with silences. So women would say, hmm, that's a tricky question or hmm, I should have something to answer you, shouldn't I? But I don't. Or again, as I said, they would laugh in some embarrassment. And so to me, we're going back many decades ago to Betty Friedan's kind of very famous feminine mystique that has now been popularized also through the series Miss America, where Betty Friedan back in the 60s asked the women that she interviewed from Smith College exactly the same question. And they were then, you know, housewives. And they said that they found nothing satisfying in their lives. So I wouldn't say that the women I interviewed are, I don't want to describe them as miserable. I think they do find pleasure in mothering. Certainly they find pleasure in being able to be with their children in ways that they feel that they really missed profoundly when they were in this kind of always on work cultures. But I think it was very telling that when it when we talk about satisfaction and what, what makes you satisfied, they were not able to articulate this and that they did express a lot of regrets. And as I said, that these interviewed, interviews were painful and were, except I think two women, all the women said that could they have done things differently, they wouldn't have left the workplace, that they would have tried to do things differently in, in hindsight. And indeed, you know, I've spoken with women, for instance, that have been out of the workplace for eight, nine, ten years. And they were there were moments throughout these years where they tried. There was one woman who was a journalist and she told me how at some point when uh, I think her older was eight and her younger child was five or six, her husband was sacked. He was fired. And she said it was really strange. And I was like intuitively saying, Oh, I'm really sorry. And she said, oh, no, that was a fantastic window of <laughs> for me. And she started applying for jobs. And but soon, in, you know, he was quicker and he found a new job quicker. And again, she was kind of reassigned uh, into the stay-at-home mother role and didn't have enough resources to pull and and to kind of you know say I want to that's my turn as well or can we sit together and see how we can both combine careers and then she kind of so it's not to say that some of these women are not trying to return to work or haven't tried which also suggests that I think they're not to your question happy or satisfied uh, entirely there was as I said, one woman who kind of thought about it, that that's her destination, and she was very happy. There was another woman who worked for almost 20 years as a partner in a law firm. And so she said, for me, it's like an early retirement, so I'm very pleased. They were the exceptions. The other women were women who really looked back and said, I've invested all this time, energy, money in education. I want to say also that more than a third of the women I interviewed are women who come from working class families and they were, were the first in their families to have university. You know, they were really the generation that really have made kind of the story of also class mobility. And so there was a very deep and profound disappointment, not just vis-a-vis themselves, but women talked about how they feel they have disappointed their mothers and their parents. And so to your question, whereas I didn't ask specifically about happiness, I think I did ask about satisfaction. And I'd say it's a very complicated picture. 
And it's a picture of many, many regrets that suggest that the answer is probably no or that it's not enough, you know. Yeah, with everything in life, there is no right way of doing this. And it may well be that for you, being a stay-at-home parent is the right thing to do. Or it may be that you would be the type of parent who would really enjoy working full-time in a very pressurized career. And I think I really, uh, there's something in me, I just don't like judgment of what we should do. Yeah. And I like that about your research that you're very inclusive. Yeah. And I really, I want, I cannot stress enough. I say it in the book, I cannot stress enough. My book is by no means and in no way a criticism of these women. It's a criticism of the structures and the conditions within which they had to pursue their careers and their choices. And that's, I think that's also where our solutions should be targeted and that's where change should come. So it's a critique of structures that are, as I said, toxic, that are systematically discriminating and that are posing impossible choices for women and men to realize fulfilling and meaningful family lives and careers. It's by no means a criticism or a critique of the individuals that have made decisions that were a product of factors that were primarily structural factors. Of course, there are some psychological factors, but I think the story here that I at least heard throughout interviewing all these women is a story of a structure that needs fixing. And thank you for doing that research. I don't think it's an issue that is talked about enough um, Mm -hmm. and it's brilliant that you've researched it. I'm interested Having now done this research and, and you're a mother of, of teenagers, which I hear, I don't have teenagers myself, but I hear that teenagers do need a lot of attention um, and sometimes more than more than toddlers and, and at inopportune times usually. Having done this research, is there anything that you now do differently in your own life? Yes, it's really interesting. I think, you know, there's lots, when I did the research, one of the things that I regret having heard these women was that I... I had like a, an impulse to rush back to work after maternity leave. I took kind of the basic maternity leave and didn't want to miss, you know, anything. And I think in hindsight, personally, I may have let myself just a slightly longer maternity leave. But I think today, I think for me, one of the main things that this book and this research, it goes back to what I said before. And this are, this is something that is not unique to having young children. Is It's a really important reminder of how the struggle should be kind of de-individualized, as it were, and how the focus, rather than blaming myself in so many situations that I would have, and it's, I still do, I don't think it's like I've found the magic solution or the magic path, but I think less often now um, than before and more often I am trying to, you know, when when there's different issues that are about the tension between parenting and my career, I am trying to kind of analyze it or think about it and say, is it about something wrong that I'm doing, you know, or is there an issue here that I can direct my energies and my anger and my frustration to try and improve or change the structure. And I can give, you know, a very trivial example, but, you know, we talked about before, I said before about this kind of feeling of, 
you know, standing up conspicuously in the middle of the meeting when you have to leave early because you need to collect your children from school. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and for years, I used to do that. And for years also, I was among colleagues who were older than me and didn't have young children, or some of them haven't had children at all. So, for instance, we would sit and say, okay, when, when, when shall we meet next time? We'd sit our team and then somebody would say, let's, let's meet at that date at four o'clock. And then somebody else would say, oh, no, Shani has a childcare problem, so we can't meet at four. And really hurt. What do you mean childcare problem? Yeah. So I think, you know, after too, too long of kind of somehow blame my, blaming myself or internalizing the hurt, or again, having to apologize every time that I have to leave a meeting early, I have been part of a university-wide committee that has, again, sounds might sound very trivial, but it's relatively new in our university. Only a few years ago, we've introduced what we now call key business hours. And this is, I think, between 10 and 2. It's a, you know, it's a kind of four hours where if there's key business, you make sure you schedule the meetings then. This might still mean I'm missing some other meetings, but at least they're not key business. And so now what happens? Now it's already part of the system. But when we were just adjusting to the system, I would be the person that, you know, we would get this kind of Outlook calendar invitation to a meeting at four o'clock. And instead of writing back and said, I'm really sorry, I have a childcare issue. The only thing I had to write, I will just cite the policy and said, may I remind that there is a key business policy now? and that's it. And they would change the, you know, so it's not about me and my problem or my issues with childcare, which is ridiculous, of course. It's a, it's a structural solution. An example of how we should and ought and can try and de-individualize these struggles to look for when we can find the solutions that are sometimes much simpler than we think, but also save us very, very painful frustrations and struggle and self-blaming. Mm, I love that. That's such a practical thing to do. To finish with, is there something practical that someone can do who's listening to this podcast and is on the fence about whether or not to leave their job? What, what practical things should they do this week to move forward with that question? Well, I think, again, it's a, it's a very personal question. So I think I'd ask myself if I was in this position, why do I want to leave? If the answer is that because I have a strong desire to change course now and become and fulfill myself as a parent, that's fine. But that's something also worth exploring. But I, I think, you know, going back to what I said, the most practical thing would be one to ring your employer and say, can I have a chat? Can we have a chat? Because I'm having this dilemma and I'm not sure and I'm anxious about returning with these conditions. Can we negotiate and look into it? And if these are women who are who have partners, I would that's the second thing is say, can we have a conversation? Not not a, a proper conversation about this decision. It's a, it's a decision, a family decision. It's a personal decision, but it's a decision that will have consequences also for, for the family. There are also crucial consequences that we haven't thought, talked about, but I talk about in the book for the child, to, for children to grow up with parents who are in paid employment who are not. So the most practical thing I would say is 
talk, go and schedule a conversation with your boss, your employer, schedule a conversation, or it's not schedule, but arrange a conversation, a proper conversation with your family, with your partner, and maybe read my book. (laughs) Mm, Fantastic. On that note, where can people find your book? What is it called again? And where can they find about your work? Do you have Twitter and LinkedIn and all that? The book again is called Heading Home, Motherhood, Work and the Failed Promise of Equality. And it's available via Amazon. It's published by Columbia University Press. And more about my work can be found. I'm not on Twitter, but I have a very kind of a detailed web page on LSE's webpage, London School of Economics. If you just Google Shani Orgard, S-H-A-N-I-O-R-G-A-D, you will find me. And there's also lots of links to blogs I've written around this issue. Also, I've written a, a blog about the four-day working week, which we've touched on, as well as articles, related articles I've written on the topic. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Shani. And thank you for the brilliant work that you do and that you're championing this. I think it makes a lot of people feel a lot less isolated. And similarly, thank you for this fantastic initiative that I'm sure is both pleasurable and comforting, but also encouraging for many women and men. Thank you. Thank you very much. We've run a little bit longer than I was planning to just because you were wonderful. And I loved your anecdotes and your examples. You were fantastic. You probably have something else to run to. So I don't want to hold you up. But if you can keep the window open, just so it's, you know, then it will save the document. That would be wonderful. But it was really nice and such a wonderful opportunity to make the connection to you. So thank you. Thank you for listening today. If you want to connect with Johnny, you can find out more about her by heading to the LSE website and just entering her name in the search function and a lot of interesting information will pop up. If you want to continue the type of conversations we're having on the podcast with other like-minded, ambitious individuals who are also parents who love their kids across sectors and across organizations, then as I mentioned, to have a look at our fellowship, leadersplus.org.uk forward slash fellowship. And it'd be great to see lots of applications from podcast listeners. I mentioned before, I really want to spread this message that it's okay to love your ambitious career and love your young children. My hope is to get to a thousand listeners by September. At the moment, we're at about 800 downloads per podcast episode. So it'd be really brilliant if you can share this podcast with your friends if you you know share it via social media the more listener the podcast gets the more interesting guests i can convince to be on the show so yeah do help me to to do that that would be wonderful you can also you probably know this from listening to other podcasts but i'll say it anyways you can also hit the subscribe button right now that helps it appear on top of the, the various podcast apps and then also obviously if you can leave a review that would be wonderful i know so many of you have already done it so thank you so much again if you leave a review ideally a five-star review that really helps with the visibility of the podcast which then helps us attract more listeners which then in turn helps us attract even more amazing guests like today so thank you for listening again really lovely that you're tuning in and Have a wonderful week. Until next time.